Horses. She likes horses. And her boyfriend, too. Uh, okay. Yeah, we're free-falling. Um, done. Live from the Mundangerous Blessed Realm in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 188 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on campaign settings and talking about playing in Tolkien's Middle-earth. But first the rogue traders flirt with disaster in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, and later the rider of Rohan races to Gondor's aid in the character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by the Great American Novel RPG. The Great American Novel is a role-playing game now on Kickstarter. It's developed by friend of the show Christopher Gray, creator of The Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, which was nominated for the 2018 Ennies Product of the Year. I think it also won an Ennie for art, and uh, the artist, uh, one uh, John A. Bear, was kind enough to sell us the domain TotalPartyThrill.com. Yes, that was pretty cool. Christopher also ran a Curse of Strahd game for us at PAX Unplugged, um, what, like a year and a half ago? Mm-hmm. The, the first one, first PAX Unplugged ever? He claims he did math wrong and that our record, our speed record is tainted, but I chose not to listen. What? Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the great American novel and not about our past achievements. Let's do that. You know, it brings a literary framework to role-playing games so that you can play the same dramatic character-driven experience you find in literature at your table. Using a system built entirely around your character, their motivations, and the conflicts that get in their way. The game can be used for any number of settings, including those found in your favorite novels, films, or television shows, and always presents a complete fictional experience with a satisfying conclusion in every session. You know, Shane, um, back in uh, 1948 or so, I was spending some time, you know, traveling the road. I had some adventures, met some cool people, and then I decided to sit down at a fancy typewriter, took a little ketamine, and for the next three days, I just punched out a role-playing game uh, on on paper. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably what Christopher must have done here. And that beautiful young boy grew up to be Barack Obama. You know, I, I met uh, some other role players. Uh, they were in a, an old jalopy heading from uh, Oklahoma out west to see if they could make their fortunes. I had a feeling they weren't going to do that well. Oh, am I supposed to keep going with this? Do I need to hold in Caulfield this? <laughs> yes, I think. That, I, I exactly thought that that was where you were going to go, <laughs> okay. was Catcher in the Rye. Okay. <laughs> it was like, what book does Shane know enough to make fun of? It's great Gatsby. It's going to be Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're such a phony. <laughs> All right, old sport. Well, if that sounds like a great idea to you, too, you can look for the Great American Novel on Kickstarter and help make this passion project a reality. Backers will get a complete ready-to-play beta version of the game upon funding. Will they, Shane? Will backers get that? I can confirm that because uh, I'm a backer. Hey, look at you. Uh, this happened actually before we realized that this was our sponsor yeah i backed it two weeks ago (laughs) yeah it's really nice so you can go to christopher.world for more information brought to you by gallant night games all right on a less happy note shane where are we in the dynasty unwarranted campaign 
So the Dynasty and Warranty Campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Death World Iblis Prime, in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. You know, Shane, it occurs to me that uh, our Rogue Traders actually are playing through a, a great American tale. We are essentially, we've come upon a new land and we've said, I think this is ours. And now we are exploiting the natural resources. Mm -hmm. Poorly. (laughs) But you'll probably pull it out in the end. Yeah, you know, hopefully like America. We'll see. So with Trank struggling to keep the mining investment out of the red and Doc having plenty of heretical breakthroughs in his research labs, Trix is off sorting an embezzlement and Flair is ingratiating himself with the Sentinels faction back in Meridian. Uh, you might say your rogue traders are spread pretty thin, huh? Yeah. So Trank finally decides to call everybody back to the mining facility because it's all he can do to make sure that Doc isn't, I don't know, tampering too much with the terrible fabric of reality. Yeah, and uh, this actually turns out to be a pretty good plan. Uh, with everybody back there, everyone can actually just focus on their jobs, and you guys are able to actually ramp up your extraction and start turning an operating profit for like the first time in like in-game eight years yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's good to be generating thrones instead of spending them for once right and to all our surprise both in the game and above the table uh it it works yeah like over the next month you get all the kinks worked out you've got ore finally flowing out of the mine and in, in reputable quantities Even Doc is managing to contribute some because he's able to kind of convert his anti-emerald stalker stablight tech heresy that he's created into a commercially viable product that you can just sell to the different militant factions back in Meridian. Yeah, he creates night vision goggles, basically. Yeah, well, but worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we built them with uh, planned obsolescence. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) What do you think commercially viable means? (laughs) so word is beginning to spread throughout meridian and the name roth enterprises is now on everybody's lips including oh those sentinels who were looked down looking down their noses at us not too long ago yeah unfortunately the good times don't last of course they don't there's an explosion in the mine shaft it causes a cave-in and it traps and kills some of your most capable engineers on the project also some of our least capable engineers but you but know, nobody counts those. Yeah. <laughs> You've got tons yeah. of least capable engineers. <laughs> well, the accident shatters morale, and it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to replace those talented engineers. So while the rogue traders are here trying to assess the damage and restore operations, rumors begin to swirl around the camp, as well as back in Meridian. The accident may have been sabotage. Listen, all y'all, we'll find out what happens next week. So this week, we'll be continuing our series on campaign settings as we finally talk about Middle-Earth. Hey, hey. Um, fantasy setting number one, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we did them a little <laughs> out of order, as it turns out. <laughs> so the point of this series is typically to introduce listeners to a campaign setting and like help you decide if you want to set a game there. I think pretty much everyone knows uh, Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings. So uh, this will be a little bit different. We're going to you know, talk about themes and potential plot hooks, but we're also going to talk a bit about how to play an interesting, good game set in a, a setting where everybody already knows what's supposed to happen. 
So the elevator pitch for Middle Earth, I guess if you are playing with someone who has never heard of it, or, or maybe, you know, you're introducing someone who doesn't know anything about RPGs, um, maybe they won't know anything about Lord of the Rings. It's it's the archetypal fantasy setting, right? It's the one that originally inspired Dungeons and Dragons, and therefore every single RPG since. Yeah, so it's a medieval world. It's been beset by an army of great evil, and it can only be saved by the actions of a brave few on a noble quest. Does that sound familiar? Of course it's familiar. Everything's based on it. Right. So, yeah, every fantasy game is in some way an homage or it's a reaction to The Lord of the Rings, right? Lots of people don't like it, and so they've created uh, systems that are particularly, that play games that don't fit in Middle-earth. Right. But playing in Middle-earth lets you immerse yourself in the War of the Ring. Uh, It also is an opportunity to just completely ignore the stories that Tolkien uh, told and then just explore less familiar paths or areas of the world that he created. Yeah, I mean, in terms of cultural zeitgeist, right, like without Lord of the Rings becoming an Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning smash box office success, like so many things that have become nerd like cornerstones of nerd culture just don't get even considered or made, right? Oh yeah, like, I, don't, I don't. Superheroes don't happen. No, like there's there's D and D isn't in Stranger Things, and Stranger Things isn't a thing without the Lord of the Rings, right? Like just direct direct descendant of the films of this setting, right? And classic rock doesn't happen. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> 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 goodbye Led Zeppelin. Everyone else could just get wrecked. <laughs> All right, so the world first met Middle-earth when J.R.R. Tolkien published The Hobbit in 1937, which is basically a children's book that lays out uh, many of the conceits for the setting. Greedy dragons, gruff dwarves, uh, sneaky halflings. Yeah, and and, uh, impossibly beautiful elves. Mm. So Tolkien was a linguist and an English professor who made up worlds and histories for those worlds so that there would actually be people who could speak the languages that he was inventing on his own. He was really influenced by English and Germanic myth, but also by all of the devastation he saw on the battlefield as a soldier during the First World War. I think a lot of people go, oh, you know, Mordor seems like Nazi Germany, and like the Shire is England, and this feels very much like World War II, because Lord of the Rings was published uh, right after World War II. But it was very much World War One, where... Tolkien took a lot of inspiration. Well, yeah, but that's just because, like, the sequel was just retelling the plot of the original. The war? <laughs> yeah, like, World War II is just the plot of World War One, but just, like, <laughs> oh, again. Oh, of course. Right, right. Like, bigger and badder, right? You know, they really should have started with World War Two and then flashed back, flashed back to World War One, so we could see how, how it all started, right? And then you'd lay the groundwork of, like, the, the Kaiser, and you'd be like, oh, wow. Treaty of Versailles shows up, and you're like, oh, this is not. We know this doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. So shortly after the publication of The Hobbit, uh, Tolkien began working on a long epic which ultimately became The Lord of the Rings, which was published in a serial format from 1954 through 1955. And then after paperback publication in the U.S. in the 1960s, that's led to an explosion in popularity around the world. Now, even after his death in 1973, his son Christopher compiled some unpublished works into the Silmarillion, which tell the history of the world of Middle-earth from its creation through the First Age. The Lord of the Rings takes place in the Third Age, so you basically, you know, expanded tens of thousands of more years of history. And it set an awful precedent of fantasy authors' children writing in their worlds, and it's just terrible. 
Yes, uh, new source books, I guess we could call them, set in Middle-earth are still being published. Yeah, and then uh, Dune followed, and so did... uh, (laughs) Wheel of Time, man, Wheel of Time. (laughs) (laughs) Game of Thrones is going to happen, too. (laughs) Yep, yep, I was just about to make that prediction. All right, so let's talk about the setting just at a high level. All right, so Middle-earth is about the size of Europe. It's a portion of a continent on the northern hemisphere of the world of Arda. It's bounded by a sea to the west, mountains to the east, ice to the north, and a desert to the south. Hey, does that sound familiar at all? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a it's... Magic the Gathering card. <laughs> uh, it's Forgotten Realms. It's, you know, Europe. Yeah. So much of Middle-earth is actually still wilderness, and monsters and dangerous people roam... Uh, everywhere in between civilization, even on the roads. These are not safe places. There are only actually a few places in the whole world that can really be called civilization. So down south, you've got the nation of Gondor, which is the last great country of humans. Yeah, and they're locked in uh, continual warfare with the orc hordes that are coming from the volcanic wasteland of Mordor, right? Yeah, but don't worry. There are immortal elves uh, except they live in isolated communities in forests or mountain valleys, and they don't talk to anybody else. Yeah, they're they're there to mind their own business and preserve whatever magic is left in the world. Yeah, and also to uh, ridicule people who do silly things like die of old age. Mm-hmm. So there are dwarves who mine ore and gems in the mountains, just like you might expect. And then there are hobbits, which I guess these days we kind of call halflings, who live a bucolic existence far away from all danger. But... A great evil has awakened in Mordor, and it is again setting out to destroy all the people of Middle-earth. There's also the First Age, which is several thousand years before this, that takes place in Beleriand. Uh, That's a world of, like, magic and song, and it's populated pretty much by elves. Like, this is the time before humans show up, who basically fight amongst themselves, or they fight gods, or they fight dragons. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, something like Gilgamesh or Greek myth where your heroes are capable of just impossible feats and uh, everything is a little kind of over the top. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think one of my favorite scenes is when Luthien Tinuviel shows up at like the stronghold of basically like the devil uh, and like sings the walls down. Like the whole place crumbles just because like her singing is so amazing. And that was the last time bards had useful spells on their spell list. See, Lord of the Rings is definitely 5th edition. (laughs) We know it's not 3.5. But Beleriand is a doomed world because at the end of the First Age, it is destroyed in a great war that remakes the entire map and turns into what we know as Middle-earth. Okay, so let's talk about some of the themes of Lord of the Rings. I think the one that people notice and, and maybe that sort of endears it to most people is the idea that the fate of the entire world rests on the decisions of a single small person you know so like the backdrop of all these stories is war and like these powerful creatures these dragons and these wizards and these like kings um but they're they're never the center of the story they're usually the periphery the stories themselves focus on uh individuals and the choices that they make not how strong they are or whether you know they decide they ultimately want to follow the path of good or the path of evil Yeah, and these heroes are going to face impossible odds, right? Sometimes they win through luck or through skill or through a little uh, cunning and trickery, but often they just die tragic deaths, and that just consequences last forever. There's also this sense that uh, evil 
takes the form of a faceless horde. Um, in a lot of cases, morality is just black and white. Um, I think we've talked a lot about how one of the reasons that we really like Eberron as a D&D campaign setting is that you can have goblins and orcs and, you know, monster monstrous creatures that are thinking and, and feeling creatures that can sort of decide how they're actually going to act. And, you know, that exists as uh, a counterpoint to the way that these creatures have usually been portrayed, which is like basically mindlessly evil. And that comes from Tolkien's uh, characterization of orcs. They're basically like corrupted and, and bred to be evil and they don't have a choice in it that they like to slaughter. Um, they're always going to be evil, and pretty much every kind of creature that isn't human takes a side in the battle between good and evil, and they're just on that side. This is sort of an instance where you, you kind of need to take a step back and be a little careful about incorporating Tolkien's casual racism into your game. He just sort of like willy-nilly describes entire races of like human beings as like having certain personality types. Like the men of Numenor are from the West and they are tall and fair skinned and they, they have like powerful blood and the men from the South are bad and have like curved wicked swords and, you know, are like join the hordes of orcs. Those are not things you need to incorporate into your game. Uh, the world of Middle-earth is also full of mystery, right? There's ancient ruins, there are uh, unexplored places, there are forests, swamps, there's the east, there's the sea, there are a bunch of um, like named characters that are just sitting around waiting to be stumbled upon. Bombadil. Or Shelob the spider. Haha, <laughs> I know two people. Just, yeah, look at you. Look at you with your Lord of the Rings. Or Smog Go the dragon. Oh, that's three. Uh, it is the Lonely Mountain for a reason. It's because he doesn't have any friends. Yeah, I I like the the feeling that Middle Earth is very lived in or like has been lived in because everywhere the characters go, they're basically stumbling across uh, an ancient civilization or like a ruin or, you know, here are burial mounds. And it, it's the conceit behind a lot of D&D, uh, &D, which is like, why are you an adventurer? Well, you know, if you just step outside and start digging, you're going to like find some like, ancient treasure because there used to be civilization here and a bunch of people died. But so, that history uh, or like all those things that are that happened in the background that aren't necessarily explicated, I love that um, it, it has a meaning and a purpose if you want it to uh, because there's a very strong theme that those who do not learn from history will be doomed to to repeat it like nothing in the lord of the rings story is happening for the first time you know they're like the fellowship is trying to like gather men and elves to form an alliance to fight like sauron who's like this horrible evil but like they did that before they did that a few thousand years ago and and defeated him and he is just a servant of like an even greater evil morgoth who's like basically like the devil figure when like elves fought him before like fifteen thousand years ago Wait, how does Sauron fit into that then? Sauron or Sauron? Sauron. Sauron is a wizard who is an angel who gets sent over to make sure that everything doesn't go terrible, but he gets corrupted, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, perfect. Yeah, he becomes a big, well, he was always a big jerk. He becomes an evil big jerk later. All right. So other examples of history repeating itself, right? Like there's always characters that are faced with decisions that others have already faced um, and often made incorrectly. Uh, the the obvious example there is like the Boromir and uh, Aragorn thing at the end of Fellowship, right? Like 
Boromir falls to temptation, and Aragorn picks it up and hands it right back to Frodo. Yeah, uh, and, and this gets reflected even in the next book, right? Like, Boromir's brother is faced with Frodo and with the exact same decision that Boromir made, even though he doesn't really know exactly what happened with Boromir. I guess maybe he does find out. And he makes the right decision, yeah? Or, like, Frodo is confronted with the decision that Isildur had, like, 3,000 years before. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sauron's defeated. What do I do with his ring? Isildur keeps it and, you know, gets his comeuppance. He gets shot in the back and dies. And Frodo doesn't, I mean, at least till the end, right? (laughs) Frodo's also confronted with the the very same temptation that Bilbo faces at the very beginning of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the actually putting the ring into Mount Doom is like its own kind of moral quandary for him as he's actually at the moment. I mean, Bilbo can't obviously do that, but by even giving it up to Frodo to attempt it, he's having to make that decision, right? Right. The people who have actually been able to relinquish it are few and far between, but they are the ones who have made the correct decision. Uh, from this history that you also get answers to puzzles or or the moral dilemmas, um, obviously, like, you know, give up the ring. But, like, for example, Mary is able to hurt the Witch King, right? The immortal Witch King Nazgul, because he has a sword that happened to be forged thousands of years before, specifically to hurt the Witch King. Yeah, that's convenient. Uh, uh, I mean, they didn't know. They were just rooting around in a burial mound. Mm-hmm. That's why you always go looting. <laughs> that's why you murder Hobo. Right. So another powerful theme of Middle-earth is that words have power. Um, Oaths are particularly binding, um, some of them magically so. Yeah, it's it's sort of an... It's an interesting characterization. It's It's an ancient, like, traditional characterization of making oaths. You know, like, you swear fealty, and it's some combination of, like, maybe magic is real and, like, fate will punish you if you break your oath but also at the same time people just don't break oaths and like will die to like keep an oath like the the writers of Rohan show up even though they know most of them are going to like get killed by orcs and Nazgul because a previous king generations before said they would mm-hmm. and like you can't break that also because like cavalry in a siege not so useful <laughs> well that's that's uh that's why they didn't bring all the horses to Helm's Deep you didn't need a prophecy. You needed Sun Tzu's Art of War. <laughs> he's uh, It wasn't going to be written for thousands of years. <laughs> or maybe he's he was hanging out in the East, which uh, Tolkien just never goes to. <laughs> right. Uh, magic words are real. Uh, we see this when uh, Gandalf is trying to basically uh, break into uh, Moria. You, all you need to do is speak the right magic word. That's the password to open the door. Uh, people's names tell you about them or place names tell you about that place not just its history but like its character um what kind of place is it and and what kind of person they are it's almost like nominative determinism but really it's more like if a person has a particular character then they will happen to have a name that meshes with it well Mm -hmm. there's even a prophecy that actually comes true uh eowyn is able to kill the witch king because she's a woman and he is unable to be killed by a man, so it's a lady and a hobbit. I mean, sweet. <laughs> it's sort of Macbeth, yeah, kind of, sort of. A proper Macbething here. <laughs> uh, 
another theme is that the great and powerful characters are also the most susceptible to temptation, right? Like, uh, as you mentioned, Soromon, uh, the wizard, turns evil because he is the most powerful and he gives into temptation. Yeah, it sort of pounded home that it is the people who would have the greatest capacity to do good who must be the most careful because the ring itself tempts them with with that knowledge. Like, think of all the good things you could do if you had this much power. But, um, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely in Middle Earth. There's there's no actual way that a a per- person who has enough agency to change the world can attempt to change the world without it going awry. Which is why you need a tiny little hobbit who has no ambition, is in, isn't interested in doing anything except, you know, getting six meals a day. They're the only person who can resist it. Right. And definitely not just because they're basically the noble English, right? <laughs> the, the noble English, but tiny. Uh, and then the last theme, I think, of Lord of the Rings is that all good things must end, right? Like, uh, it's always a world in flux that's changing. Uh, Balerion is doomed. Uh, the elves are immortal, but they're um, they're fading away as the magic is dying in the world. What is it? They have to take the, the long trip to the east? Uh, to the west to the Grey Havens and then take the ships to the Blessed Realm. Oh, right. I don't know yeah. east and west. Obviously, they're going to the water. I knew there were ships involved. <laughs> and of course, the water yeah. is to the west. <laughs> there can't be water to the east. It doesn't make any sense. They got to go meet up in not Portugal. <laughs> I did always find it uh, interesting that like tobacco plays such a big role, like pipeweed. Because, like, that's definitely a new world crop. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. All right. So now you know all about Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings. You definitely didn't know all that stuff before. Uh, What if you actually want to play in it? Because I find it interesting that you have so many, like, campaign settings that are based on the conceits of Middle Earth. But I have not heard of very many people playing games that are actually set there. What about you? I mean, I think the One Ring RPG is popular, right? Like people must play it, right? But that's like that's like a system that is specifically built to do that. But like other than other than that, like I don't really, I haven't really heard of people being like, "Hey, playing D anD D." Lots lots of people will do. I have a homebrew, or like I'm playing in you know Forgotten Realms or some version of Forgotten Realms or Mistara or whatever. But I very rarely see people saying, "Hey, we're going to play in Middle Earth." Yeah, I mean, I think for D&D, I think that's probably true. Um, I know that was certainly less true when I started playing D&D because the alternatives weren't really there. Oh, interesting. So, like, 80s and 90s, you were in Uh, 90s and early 2000s. (laughs) (laughs) I forget you're so young. (laughs) Um, Really? Oh, I guess there was that was the resurgence, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. with with the actual movies. Yeah, so when mm. those movies came out was when mm. the RPG support came out, I think, in earnest, and that license got opened up, right? Okay, so we'll we'll talk about this in a second, but I want to know, how were you playing them? Like, were you just in Middle Earth, or were you characters from the Fellowship? Oh, I never, I mean, I never had any interest in it, but, like, a big part of it was trying to figure out, like, a, a big part of, like, the discussion at the time, right, was fitting Vancey and casting into Lord of the Rings and how do you uh, solve the casting problem to play in Lord of the Rings? And the answer is there don't are play no spellcasters in Lord of the <laughs> yeah, Rings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Thieves and fighters the whole way down. (laughs) Right. Gandalf is like a level two evoker, you know? Right. (laughs) All right. So if you're going to play in Lord of the Rings, uh, one of the things you can do is just play through the plot of Tolkien stories, right? So play as the characters, play as the Fellowship of the Ring if you want to, uh, and see if you can deliver the ring to Mordor. Yeah, board games do this a lot. Uh, I think it was actually a Fantasy Flight Lord of the Rings board game that I used to have back in the day where you picked like a hobbit, you know, and the, and you had to work your way through all the way to Mordor, um, kind of like, you know, in a, a Candyland game of life kind of way. Yeah, and the, the, the game itself controlled the eye of Sauron, right? That eventually yeah, exactly. Moved along and the tracker. like, you know, if, if you made bad decisions or rolled poorly, like it would move closer to finding you. And then, you know, if whoever was holding the ring got found by the eye of Sauron, like everybody lost the game. Uh, this can make for an interesting what if scenario. Like it's particularly nice when everyone who's playing is very familiar with the books. So you get that nice uh, dramatic irony of what's different in your game and also sort of the knowledge of knowing what is happening in other parts of the game world, uh, even though things might be different where you are. So you can sort of have that like speculative fiction, even though like the original is also fiction. Mm-hmm. Speculative fan fiction. There you go. You Yeah, it's very much fan fiction because, you know, the other stuff that we do is not really fan fiction at all. It's um, nothing like that except my Harry Potter stuff. I also like the idea of playing characters that are adjacent to the action um, that's going on in Tolkien's world. So you could be like part of Aragorn's army, which I believe is the army of Gondor. Oh, nerd facts. Look at you go. You could be a rider of Rohan, Rohan that's racing to Gondor. You could be a ranger of the north who has sworn fealty to Aragorn. You know, all these things kind of um, taking on missions and tasks that are um, adjacent to the main thrust of the plot. Yeah, I think, you know, if you don't want to change what happens in the books, that's fine. You know, you'll have an idea of um, what the outcome is going to be in general, but you can play these scenarios out um, like you are trying to lend assistance to the the, the greater plot, right? So, you know, if uh, the rangers in Athelion are unable to, like, hold back orcs, then, you know, the siege of Osgiliath becomes much more difficult, and, you know, Aragorn shows up with, like, fewer men. I'm, I'm getting my battle's confused so uh, we're gonna get added a lot it's fine i'm just gonna stop okay (laughs) doing this does leave some parts of the story just completely off limits right like it's gonna be awful hard to justify how your second merry band of halflings managed to sneak into mordor along with frodo one does not simply march we sang and like galumphed (laughs) right right and shelob was like yeah that's fine you go i like your moxie kids Though I do kind of like the idea of you being like the advance party for Frodo, who's just making sure that all the major threats are out of the way, you know, like oh my making God, his be... path as easy as possible. Oh, and you could just play regular D&D and you're like level 15 characters. Yeah. And then you handle all the dragons and you're like, eh, it's fine. That's just Shelob. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Sure, it's immune to non-magical weapons, but like, who doesn't have a plus four flaming longsword? <laughs> exactly. You have an you have an invisible ring. You'll be fine. Just keep walking. Yeah, that's a legendary. The other thing you can do is play in the setting, but completely ignore the plots of the books. So the entire second age of the world is wide open for pretty much everybody except for like Tolkien scholars or people who've read every single um, one of the like posthumous books because. Yeah, we know how the Second Age ends, but we don't get a lot about what happens during it. Uh, well, then don't read or don't play Shadow of Mordor. I thought that was contemporaneous. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. I have no idea. Do, no. do you think that I played that game and understood at <laughs> all what was going on? No. I think the thing I didn't like about Shadows of Mordor, which I have not played, is that he seems to like have magic powers and stuff, and like it just doesn't fit with the like low fant low the low magic fantasy setting of everything else you know like why does why does this guy have magic when yeah. like gandalf is like i'm really trying to start a fire here give me a second i think he's actually like an ancient spirit who's possessing a warrior if i recall uh, i don't i mean okay. again so he's like a dead guy or something something like that or he's like yeah something he's a an ancestor that's powered through something like that i, I don't really remember to be honest i see yeah, well, all our listeners should at Shane and let him know all about Shadows of Mordor. Yeah. Tell me all about the plot I missed in a button masher. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know that, like, Isildur wins that war, so you could have the party be instrumental in that victory, and then, you know, they basically sort of watch as Isildur like, claims the ring for himself, marches off, and, and like, gets shot, like, pincushioned with arrows, and, like, that's disappointing to them. But, like, their part of the story was still successful and interesting. You could also play as like a party of dwarves who are either maybe setting up the kingdom of Moria or perhaps they are trying to hold the line while the kingdom evacuates as much as possible. Yeah, I like that idea. Like the, you know, you're going to go down to the Baylor, right? There's no way that you can like defeat the Balrog, but you can get out as many of the dwarven the commoners mm -hmm. as possible. That's kind of a cool last stand game. Yeah. Uh, or just set it, uh, again, set it in the first or second age. Like, forget Balin. Like, this is the first time that dwarves have tried to settle Moria or Khazad-dur or whatever it was. Like, you're the initial ones doing it for the very first time. And, you know, maybe you're the ones who trap the Balrog in the first place. Oh, I like that idea. Uh, I always wondered what the heck happened to the two blue wizards who went out to the east. Um, I think they needed food badly is probably what happened. And then, you know... 800 seconds later, they starve to death. Okay. Really, tra really tragic. <laughs> I hear out east is just full of, it's like silly with monster generators. Um, if you're very into the first, the first age sort of mythos, then you could easily play heroes um, set in the first age because they're much more like D&D &D characters. You don't even need a specific system for it. Yeah, you have like Baron leaping like a hundred feet, and there's like a, this very um, Guardians of the Galaxy Power Stone moment where, like, you know, the three gems, the Silmarils, are you know the thing that everybody's fighting over, and like he grabs it with his bare hand, um, which is like not a thing that most people can do. Uh, you know, it, it sears him, but he's able to like contain the power. It's you know that's where that came from. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of combining these two. Like you could. You could have your campaign set somewhere adjacent to what's going on. Let's just say out east, right, where the Blue Wizards went. No one really knows exactly what's out there. 
Um, but you know, it can it can just be like like everywhere else in Middle Earth, like it's a a um, medieval society, and like Tolkien just doesn't really talk about it, but still be doing something to thwart Sauron because Sauron is still trying to like gather armies from like all over the world. So maybe you like prevent that from happening, and then that is why the Lord of the Rings plays out the way that it actually does because you prevented Sauron from having um, enough allies to just completely overrun Gondor. Yeah, or perhaps you've stolen some other artifact from Sauron in the first place that he he cannot recover, so this is his last chance to to do so with the ring. Oh, I like that, that there's like something else besides the ring that we've just never heard about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did yeah. that. Like that's the reason that Sauron didn't just swat uh, Frodo in the first place, right? Just throw his entire army in the path is that he had he was kind of trying to manage two problems at once. I dig it. They weren't the only fellowship. We we were over here killing the dragons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you mentioned it a little bit. Let's talk a bit about uh, systems that work well for. Lord of the Rings. So there have been several versions of this licensed officially uh, since the uh, 80s, I suppose. But the current one is called The One Ring, um, published by Cubicle 7. uh, And that uses a proprietary dice. Uh, It also has a supplement for 5th edition D&D compatibility called Adventures in Middle-Earth. And that seems to be like the main system right now that people are using uh, to play Middle-Earth games. But... I mean, there are a lot of other systems that you could use, although most of them are going to require some kind of tweak because you have this high fantasy but low magic setting with Middle-earth. Like, Gandalf calls himself a wizard, right? But he basically has, like, two fire cantrips uh, and then (laughs) self-resurrection. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Also, he has to change colors to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got a... uh, a glamour weave cloak so perfect yeah there's two magic items oh no actually apparently i think his fire spells come from his fire ring oh well there yeah. you go yeah that's invisible it's an invisible fire ring so he just has used magic device oh he's a rogue he totally is a rogue right and it's for somehow he's a staff and longsword fighter i don't know <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> how does he have that build and no armor <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so obviously uh, low-level D&D with uh, heavy tweaking of the spellcasters, I think, makes some sense. Um, You could also consider maybe something like um, Band of Blades, uh, which is the Blades in the Dark hack for kind of a low-fantasy mercenary fiction. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I like the idea of, like, relatively simple tweaks to D&D. So... Maybe just start with like only martial characters, you know, like no magic. And then once people hit like level 10, maybe you can say you can have spellcasting classes up to like five, level five, right? So level three spells would be the highest that anyone would ever get, but you can't even start out with those. And then I actually think that Warhammer Fantasy can work well because... You know, the one of the themes of Lord of the Rings is like you might basically be like a rat catcher who finds himself like thrust into the middle of of a like world saving quest. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there is certainly uh, enough variety in the enemies in Warhammer 
that like it, you have pretty good representation for what the fellowship faces yeah like lots of you know beast men i mean obviously don't let your players play magic users because it, like just the magic doesn't work the same way but you know some so they really the fellowship does meet a demon <laughs> yeah and they have a bad time of it mm-hmm. uh anything else any other systems you think that might be good what do you think about Shadow of the Demon Lord? Oh, interesting. I think that could work really well for a Mordor-focused campaign. Mm-hmm. Like the lands that are close to Mordor or, you know, a land, an area that has been overrun by orcs or maybe even like near the Mirkwood. There's a lot of like terrible things that are happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think you still probably need to restrict some of the spell casting to mm-hmm. a degree but uh yeah I, I think that works or at least the spell casting to for your players i think there are definitely areas in middle earth where people will be less surprised to be dealing with enemy spellcasters. yeah so we'll wrap this up the way we always do our campaign setting episodes ishan would you play in middle earth i totally would Although I wouldn't play in a game where I'm playing a member of the Fellowship. I wouldn't either do it adjacent or probably, more honestly, I'd want to play like a first age elf who just does crazy stuff. Hmm. Like, hey, we're sailing this ship into the sky! Which is what they did. Spelljammer. Yeah. (laughs) We totally do that. All right. What about you? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, you're not uh, a talking guy. No, I'm not. I just, yeah, I just don't have much interest in it. Um, I wouldn't mind something of like an homage, you know, like in the same way that like we mentioned, this is the third age, right? And there were two previous ones. Like if we said we were in the fourth or fifth age uh, and we stumbled across something that like was kind of, you know, that was a plot point of kind of building towards a reveal of like, oh, we're actually playing in Middle Earth in the far future, right? Um, I wouldn't mind that kind of throwback. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to like intentionally venture into it. I mean, Tolkien said if he had to guess like 1958 was the sixth or seventh age. Well, he was also pretty bad at geology, so I don't really trust him. (laughs) What if I told you I would run a game and you could play Luthien Tenuviel, whose song does at will 8d10 damage to structures? Eh? Uh, eh? <laughs> Luthien Tenuvial, you say? <laughs> Why, sign me up. <laughs> no character I like more in Lord of the Rings than Luthien Tenuvial, the character from the the sequel to the series. <laughs> the prequel sequel? The, the prequel to the prequel of the sequel of the series. Hey, she uh, gets married to Star-Lord, uh, who Chris loses Pratt. his hand, I think in a wolf's mouth, you know, which is extremely Norse mythology. This got made into a movie or something? No, no, just the, the the guy who holds the gem in his hand and doesn't like immediately get murdered. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. You're like, oh right, that happened. Okay. Now I remember. Sure. I didn't see Guardians of the Galaxy too, but I believe that happens. It was in the first one. Oh, okay, good for you. You didn't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> no nerd <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> the, I see. The, this is a this is a long a long form joke, right? I'm supposed to say Star Lord and you're supposed to go, who? all right do you hear that ishan who well let's find out when we move on to the character creation forge but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you 
You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you today by Cobalt Press. Want to learn the secrets of elven magic? Or yes. blast your enemies with battle magic? Also, yes. Or build cunning mechanical servants with clockwork magic? Boy, do I. Well, the Deep Magic series from Cobalt Press has all this and more for 5th edition. Tell me about it. It's got time magic. It's got rune magic. It's got illumination. How many PDFs are in this collection? Nearly 20, which I'm assuming is somewhere between 15 and 19. And there are new ones coming out all the time. You know, in this series, you'll find new magic schools, sorcerous origins, warlock patrons, feats, spells, magic items, and more. There's basically nothing else that you need to be magical in 5th edition. That's like, that's got all the bases covered. Yeah, but I was about to play a Lord of the Rings game, and now I'm overwhelmed with possibilities, and I'm thinking, forget it. Forget it. I'm going to play Eberron. Well, when you get ready for your Eberron game, you can pick up the Deep Magic series for 5th edition at www.cobaldpress.com. So, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Rider of Rohan. So, I made a joke about the Rider of Rohan, uh, and I believe I did read most of that book at some point. Hey, But tell right. me, what is a Rider of Rohan, Ishan? Uh, they're mounted cavalry that ride to the aid of Gondor, arriving at the last minute to break the orc hordes with a cavalry charge. Uh, and then I think most of the horses die, because that's what happens in a cavalry charge. Yeah, don't orcs carry pikes? Uh, they don't know how to use them. They're actually very undisciplined warriors. I actually think I don't think I saw any orcs with uh reach weapons. Now that oh, I think yeah, no, about they it, they just had those stupidly shaped swords, right? Uh, yeah, and they have like weird hooks and like they're Klingon swords <laughs> with like strange barbs. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Str- strange, easily broken off barbs, huh? <laughs> Metallurgy is not their strong point. No, clearly not. All right. So, what's the build? It is Human Cavalier Fighter 17, Scout Rogue 3. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, since we're mounted cavalry, we're going to go ahead and take the mounted combatant feat, yeah? Oh, totally. Uh, We need everything that we possibly can get to try to keep our horse alive, and still it's not going to last forever. You're going to need new horses. (laughs) (laughs) This just, yeah, we built the, uh, the mounted knight earlier, and that was a barred paladin because, like, you want to be able to use a bunch of spells to keep your horse alive, but you're a rider of Rohan. You ain't got no spells. No, and your horses, they got to die. Yeah, they got 19 HP. <laughs> so. But from fighter, you're going to get a uh, fighting style. You can, well, a couple of fighting styles, but you could take protection is fine. Dueling is good. Uh, archery is good too, because of course, what's uh, a good thing to do while you're on the back of a horse and you're very mobile? Shoot people with arrows. That's one thing I learned from the Mongol hordes. The other is how to make fireworks. <laughs> really? <laughs> is that I true? I don't actually know. Soccer. Okay. Was it soccer? So- <laughs> uh, you'll also get six ASIs as Fighter 17. You'll get to use your Indomitable ability uh, three times. And you'll also get Action Surge twice per uh, short rest. You'll get three attacks around. Uh, you get your choice of of a few different skills but of course it's going to be animal handling that you take 
Um, Born in the Saddle gives you advantage on saves to stay mounted, and you can mount or dismount with five feet of movement instead of half your movement. You get a marking mechanic, which, which gives attackers disadvantage on other targets. Of course, that's including your mount. And if they do uh, attack, you get to uh, repost. You'll also be able to increase an attacked ally's AC by 1d8. Hey, that's your mount. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, and your enemies are going to be provoking if they move within your reach. And if you hit with an opportunity attack, you'll be able to reduce their speed to zero. So I think it's probably best to use a reflavored lance. Uh, um, like Riders of Rohan aren't really like jousting knights, so they don't really mm-hmm. use lances, but they definitely are shown using like long spears. But a, a spear isn't a, a reach weapon in 5e, so like go with the lance so you have yeah, reach. Yeah, a lance is like a heavy spear, right? Yeah, exactly. It is one-handed if you're mounted, and I think it does a D10, which is great. Uh, and then you also get a charging mechanic where you can, when you move into an enemy, uh, they must make a saving throw or fall prone. So from Scout Rogue, you'll get expertise. Uh, at least one of those is going to be animal handling. You can sneak attack when you're using that bow of yours. I like that you can use cunning action to either run quickly, because like one of the things that the riders did uh, was, at least for a while, keep up with um, the remaining members of the fellowship and basically run all night. Uh, but you, you can quickly mount or dismount casually. So like if you think about it, it costs you five feet of movement to mount a horse and another five to dismount the horse. That means that horses are regular terrain for you. Mm-hmm. Right, like you can move through a herd of horses at the same speed that you can walk on normal ground. <laughs> can you not? <laughs> of course I can. Of course I can. Uh, and you can do this with cunning action. Um, so, like, it's bonus action, mount and dismount multiple horses. Right. <laughs> Your basic, it's basically rodeo tricks. Perfect. Uh, you'll get uh, nature and survival and expertise in both of those. And when an enemy ends adjacent to you as a reaction, you can move half your speed, which means that if an enemy moves adjacent to you and you are anywhere near your horse, you can get on your horse. Or if you really need to, you can get off your horse. Mm-hmm. So in terms of leveling order, uh, I think it's both uh, powerful and thematic to start Rogue 3 and then finish out all of your fighter levels. So Ishin. Who is your rider of Rohan? Rohan. God, I'm so bad at pronouncing that. It, it's fine. Uh, you're obviously a giant Dragon Ball Z fan, and you're just thinking of Gohan. Mm-hmm. You mean Gohan? <laughs> so my rider of Rohan is a cattle rustler. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, grew up in the West where most of the time you're herding cattle but sometimes you're stealing that cattle and what you need to be able to do in order to do that well is fancy tricks on your horse so you ride in your horse you ride uh you do that thing where you like slip over the side so people can't see you it looks like it's just a horse and you're riding bareback because of course D doesn't have any rules for whether there are saddles or barding or anything like that um if you want to zip around to the other side of your horse so to get cover so no one can see you, you can. It doesn't take you any extra movement. You just hop right over that thing um, and realize that there's a wider world out there. There are more things to steal than just cows. In fact, there are things that are more valuable and much lighter, things you could even put in your pocket. Sounds great. 
but never she never quite got over the uh, the love of horses and so she every time she can have a horse she does have a horse uh, with her or, you know to tries not to get too attached because they never last very long because she's living a dangerous profession but you know I bet she tries to get her hands on a figurine of wondrous power or something like that so you've made like the Dukes of Hazard of horses yeah except she that uh, no one paints through... a confederate flag on their horse well sure but she goes sliding <laughs> through the saddle like Bo Duke oh absolutely yeah 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 wonderful uh, and uh, and the horn is is plays some some other song probably yeah, it plays Kukaracha. the horn of gondor <laughs> yes it's trumpets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right what about your rider of rohan my rider of rohan uh i think is actually just a a, a squire to a knight um who is you know trying to learn the craft um, trying to understand what it takes to be a knight, um, but will never actually be like is not of noble birth and therefore cannot actually become a knight proper, right? So um, uh, over the course of you know training and preparing and serving, um, my my rider of Rohan has learned all of the skill necessary to be a knight, but can never actually enter the knighthood. Uh, so, so as a scout rogue. Uh, must steal a horse and set off on his own in order to uh, you know make his own way in the world. Ooh, I like that. So it's Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, but without yeah, the serendipity I, of a dead knight. I guess so. <laughs> uh, you know, you do have an open expertise. I think deception would be a great option here. Oh, so just a false knight. Yeah, why not? Okay, yeah, sure. Those visors are great for something. I'll go. I'll go full Heath Ledger then. <laughs> my uh, sidekick Jeffrey Chaucer, and my other sidekick who will fong you. <laughs> I think it's Alan Tudyk. Is that is that it? Yeah, I think so. It is. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. This is Made Me a Better Player and DM by Shinny564. I started listening to this podcast after they joined DSPN and hearing an ad. All of the topics that Shane and Nishin discuss will always come up in games and help you get the most from them. The self-deprecating humor is wonderful and gives the cast the casual feel of listening to your own friends talk about rpgs that's not to say anything about the character creation forge which have added a litany of npcs to my world and wonderful ideas for characters for my future pcs see and they say ads don't work (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) right here thank you shinny um and (laughs) keep listening to dspn yeah listeners to other shows actually act on ads huh you know People can pay us money and we'll read things on the air. Yeah. Well, you can try. We probably won't respond to the email. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's true. We're not very good at that. But we've got a backlog when we're working through it. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about running races. Like You mean like foot races or like elections? The former. I think elections would be great for a different episode. Probably on fixing races. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
And how about in the character creation forge? We're building the marathoner. Well, that's it for episode 188 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.